This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Rebecca Mackay, author of the novels The Borrower and The Hundred Year House, and the short story collection Music for Wartime. Her short fiction has appeared in the Best American Short Stories four years in a row. She also publishes in literary magazines such as Harper's and Tin House and is the recipient of a 2014 NEA fellowship. She lives in Chicago. I noticed in your short story collection, Music for Wartime, that there are several tropes that come in. Obviously, war and music are two of them. But there's also ghosts and family and theater and history and a lot of faith, really interesting um, inclusions of moments of faith. So I just wanted to ask you about those tropes and do do they haunt you in your conscious life or do they come out through your writing? Um, I'd say both. Those are things that, you know, I'm, I'm not, for instance, writing about theater and the arts without some actual interest in that in my life. You know, that I, I um, the reason I'm drawn to write about it is because I have a lot of friends who are actors. I was, you know, studied theater in college, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, the reason I write about faith is, again, I was raised in a pretty religious family, but a complicatedly religious family, and then um, really grew away from that as an adult. But I'm, I still really grapple with those questions of why people believe what they believe. So um, it's not, they're not things that I sit around doing about, but then they're what comes out when I write. I think in the same way that maybe um, people tend to dream about the same things over and over again because they're things that they're working on at that point in their lives. Certain things come out again and again in my fiction. And, you know, when you're putting together a collection, there's this delicate balance between wanting things to be thematically linked and not wanting to repeat yourself. You know, like you want it to seem like a theme and not a rut. Um, And so there was, especially as I put the stories together into the collection, there was a lot of calibration to be done, um, making sure that there wasn't overlap, but there were echoes and so on. But yeah, no, I, I, you know, I named the collection Music for Wartime after identifying um, those themes in my own stories, starting to realize that I was I was writing stories clustered around not just music and war, but the question of what it means to be an artist and to try to make beauty and order in the midst of a brutal and complicated world. So um, I I kind of drew those two themes to the fore and, and wrote towards those, but there certainly are other ones too. And how did they play into your life? I know you have a, a rich family history with uh, a, your dad was from Hungary, your your grandparents. Uh, tell me about what it was like sort of growing up. Was it a storytelling family? Was it was history handed to you like it was something sacred? Right. Not so much like it was sacred. It was just that there were really phenomenal, bizarre stories being told around me constantly. Um, my My father... In particular, my mother's had a fascinating life. You know, she was a college linguistics professor, you know, and and of a generation when that was a pretty remarkable thing. It still is a pretty remarkable thing. So she had an interesting life, too. Not to say she didn't, but my father's life has just been bizarre. The basic story that um, gets told in this collection, even though this is a work of fiction, my own family story comes out in a few linked stories. And the basic story is that um, my father was born in Hungary in 1935. He 
escaped um, and came to America. Um, this, this I don't really write about, but he came to America in 1956 after um, the failed Hungarian Revolution, which he took part in as a student. But his parents um, are the really interesting part. His mother was an actress and then a very successful novelist. Um, she has about 40 books, 40 novels in Hungarian, really pretty famous, and um, was involved in the resistance and just, you know, really cool life. His father, my father's father, was a member of parliament and was responsible for um, the second set of anti-Jewish laws, which is a kind of a horrible thing to have hanging over your, over your family as a legacy. But it gets weirder from there. You know, he, his life ended when he, he ended up in Hawaii living as a yoga instructor. I mean, just everything about it is, is, gets weirder and weirder and weirder the more you look into it. So it's not so much that stories were, were made much of or that I was told, you know, stories are important or even that these stories were told with any special flair, particularly, although my father does love to exaggerate. But um, it's just that the stories were so compelling. They were just so interesting. And I think they were stories that really made me question what I might have inherited from these people, what, what my legacy is from them and what I'm supposed to do with that, what I'm supposed to do with, you know, guilt on the one hand and great pride um, on, in, for instance, my grandmother and her work on the other and, and how much can I own those? So, um, you know, you know, you ask what it was like growing up in my house. My house was a, a, a very strange place. We had refugees living in our basement constantly. Um, my father was very often living actually in Elsewhere in other countries, he spent a couple of years of my childhood living in Singapore. Um, we would join him sometimes. It was just it was a, a strange, chaotic household, but um, but filled with stories and filled with music too. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rebecca Mackay, author of the short story collection "Music for Wartime." You told me that as a kid, you were a big liar. And I'm just wondering how you equate that to writing short stories and how short stories are manipulation. I love being manipulated when I read a story. I love Nabokov, for instance. I love, I'm not sure if I can use the word I want to use, this being the radio, but I love someone messing with your mind. <laughs> um, there's a better word for that. But that's, I love that kind of read, you know. And I actually equate it to magic shows, you know, just sort of the art of misdirection, leading people in one to expect one thing, giving them something else, confusing people inappropriate. Um, and, and, and it's also the, the manipulation of making you, you know, how do I make people care more for this character? How do I get people more invested? Which is just craft. It's not evil or anything. And it, you're not damaging anybody by making them care about a character. In fact, people want to care about characters. So I don't feel bad about it. But it's the kind of thing that if you did that in real life, if you walked around going, how can I convince everybody to like me more? That, you know, um, well, maybe, maybe we all do that. <laughs> if you thought about it in those terms, it would be a little manipulative. Yeah. So given that, are endings challenging for you? Because the ending is usually where the manipulation is ultimately played out. That's where I have the most fun. I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're very challenging. They're challenging for everyone. But I think that's where I take the most joy from problem solving and you know, when an ending works well in a way that I like, I'm so much happier about that than I would be about a beginning that works well. Um, except I feel like the ending's the whole point. Your whole story is a vehicle to get to that 
ending, that landing point. I talk a lot about endings. I do a whole um, craft course on endings that, you know, kind of when I travel to different conferences and things, but that's um, my favorite craft talk to give um, because I think they're so important and then they just don't get discussed that much, especially in workshops. You kind of start by picking apart the beginning of someone's story. You never really get to the end. And if it doesn't work, no one tells you how to make it work. And I think they're, they really baffle a lot of writers. And I love the toolkit that's available to us at the ending, the way that we can play with time at the ending of a story in a way that might be more natural than playing with time in the middle or at the beginning of a story, the way we can change perspective or even change point of view, change focus. Um, and that shift at the end signifies ending. It, it destabilizes us from the narrative. So we feel like the story's ending, which is important. Also, in that jump, whatever it, whatever it is that's changing at the end, that's so often where the meaning is. You know, for instance, if a story, if at the end we leap forward five years in time, that leap is going to give us a lot of the meaning of the story. And I love picking that stuff apart. And I love, um, I love figuring out what's possible and what's right for a certain story. I want to talk about your story called The November Story. It's about a reality show where the producers are trying to manipulate the characters to fall in love, and all of the contestants on the show are some kind of artist. There's a puppeteer, and in this case, the two that they're trying to manipulate are Astrid, who is a glassblower, and Leo, who is a composer. And so they're trying to get them to fall in love, and they they really won't do it. And on, on the camera, but then at the at the end or near the end, the producer sees them kissing behind the set. Can you talk right. about this this uh, narrative decision and sort of the research that might have went into the story? Well, okay, I'll start with the research, which was basically non-existent because um, I tried. But everyone who works in reality TV signs these three million dollar non-disclosure agreements. So they're not allowed to talk about it. And um, occasionally you could find something, but um, I really just had to make it up. I had to, I I did what research I could. And then I, um, I just kind of assumed the worst, basically. I just wrote the worst possible version of what I thought was going on. Then it was published in um, Crazy Horse, which is a great small literary magazine. And of course, you know, I didn't really hear much after that. But then about a year later, it, I read it on This American Life on um, public radio. And the response was hilarious because, first of all, a lot of people misunderstood and thought it was a true story because it's first person and it's present tense, and people are used to nonfiction from This American Life. So I got a lot of emails, um, people saying, like, oh, we're making a documentary. Do you want to be in it? Because you apparently are willing to talk. And I had to write back again and again and go, I was making it up. It's fiction. Um, but I also got all these emails from people who do work in reality TV and who um, sometimes they, they very often couldn't even tell me what show they worked on, um, but they'd hint at what show it was. And then um, would either basically say, you got it all right, or say, um, what show did you work on? <laughs> because they were assuming I had, basically just because I assumed the worst. Um, so I found that like hilarious, gratifying and awful and hilarious that basically like, by assuming the worst, I basically apparently got it right. Um, I mean, I talk about manipulation. Obviously, I'm a person who's really interested in manipulation. It was fascinating for me to be writing about the art that these contestants were trying to make, um, 
you know, some more cynically and some more um, seriously, earnestly than others. But the real art um, that the story is obsessed with is the art of these producers and how they're taking these real humans and trying to craft them into characters. And so what about what about the narrative notion of of making these people actually fall in love, but manipulating the producers into thinking they hadn't? And then, well, who knows if they're in love, but they're kissing. And I think the questions that our narrator has at that point are um, are probably ours as readers, you know, that the, um, she's thinking like, you know, how long has this been going on? Did we make this happen or was it happening already? And if we did make it happen, is it real? Um, just, I think it was the, you know, it was the turn. It was the, the pivot point that the story needed um, for me that, uh, you know, this is a, a woman, this, this producer who her own love life is falling apart at the same time. And she is really holding on to the belief that she can craft reality in this environment, but she doesn't actually believe she can. She just believes that she can make it look like that. And um, the shock for her there is that she probably has actually changed reality, that sometimes that works, even as at home in her love life, own love life, as she's trying to force things to be a certain way, it's failed. And um, it's, it's complicated. I don't, I don't think it's not a story that's trying to give you one message about, you know, what it means to try to manipulate or to try to, you know, inflict your art on the world. It's a, it's a story that's asking questions about it. And so that the, it's coming up with several different kind of conflicting answers. Um, that sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it backfires. And I wanted that story to be pretty messy in its conclusions. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rebecca Mackay, author of the short story collection, Music for Wartime. Well, I'd like to talk about my favorite story in the book, which is The Miracle Years of Little Fork. And this is this is a story where a circus comes to town and the elephant dies on the scene in the town and they've been having a drought so they can't they have to take the tent down around him and they can't dig into the earth to make a grave for him so his trainer ends up staying when the circus leaves town they put the elephant in a pool a swimming pool an empty pool an (laughs) an, an empty pool because they don't have any water and kind of cover him up with gravel and say when we have water we'll dig him a hole and that's kind of the premise of the story. Tell me, you know, there's a lot more that happens, but um, and and you can take it from there if you want. But tell me about this story and how you came up with it and and what it means to you. It's funny because I think that that's where the story starts, and then it goes in some strange directions from there. <laughs> that's that's strange enough to begin with. But um, honestly, um, there I did. I heard a story about, um, and I've actually heard two different stories about different. Midwestern states. So I think this probably happened a lot, but places, towns that have elephants buried in them because the circus elephant died as they were passing through. And I guess if you think back, all these traveling circuses, sooner or later, your elephant would die and you got to bury it where you are, right? You can't take it with you. Um, so there are, you know, I, I just think about the, you know, if we've somehow lost track of the historical record and there are paleontologists, you know, a thousand years from now digging around. Um, North America, they're going to find all these elephants and they're going to come to the wrong conclusions, which um, so I shouldn't be laughing, but it cracks me up. But um, anyway, I, um, I basically, I just, I just, you know, someone 
said this about this about this town that had an elephant buried in it, and I just became obsessed. And um, I felt like it was just a good, a huge, literally huge catalyst for things to happen. You know, you're kind of always looking for, um, you know, you want to create these people, and then you want to shake them up and change them. And um, this is a story. It's a very often, you know, often you're writing a story and those changes are internal, um, people realizing things or whatever. And this is a story that is really about external forces because it's not just the elephant. There's the drought, then there's this like a season of rain, and then there's this crazy wind. Like the 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 weather is doing bizarre things to this town and to the corpse of the elephant. And and I wanted to to kind of trap these people in this little town. And our main character, our main character is really the the reverend of this church who's kind of, by the end, seriously questioning his own faith. Um, and then the, the elephant trainer is, I guess, our other big character. But I wanted to just have the, the forces of nature kind of see what they could do to these people, to push them from the outside as characters instead of pushing them from the inside. And they, they both end up very changed people by the end of the story. How did you end up with the idea for the drought? I was in Lincoln, Nebraska, at a, reading to a bunch of librarians, and there was a crazy wind outside. And someone just started, one of these librarians started telling me this story about this wind that was so crazy that it blew a cat or a dog or something into the next yard. And I felt like that was something I wanted to write about. And then I felt like, okay, that goes in the same story as the elephant. I hadn't started to write the elephant story yet. So I just, yeah, I just, I was like, okay, we're just going to, we're going with crazy weather and elephants. But the, the drought helped in that um, you can't, I, it, it helped because you couldn't bury the elephant. Um, if you could have dug the hole and filled it in, the elephant's dead and, it, you know, gone and buried, you don't have the town thrown into turmoil as it is in the story, the way it stands with this rotting corpse that they have to do something about. Um, I had fun with that one. I think it's, it's, it's fun to sort of, um, be in, instead of to just get into your characters and and like I said make those tiny internal changes to really play God to um, I always tell my my writing students to remember that they can do that to think of themselves as sort of like minor Olympian gods just looking down and throwing obstacles on characters and seeing what they can do to them obviously change is internal but the stimulus for that change can be external and we forget that I think a lot tell me about an author that has really influenced you as a writer, can you read a passage? Mm. You know, there, there are so many. I think since we're talking about short stories um, and you were asking about endings earlier, um, I'll give it's a very obvious answer, but I, I learned so much from reading Alice Munro. Um, the way she ends a story, the leaps that she makes, um, especially chronological leaps, those um, just, just, the, just reading those early in my career made me aware of so many possibilities narratively that I, that hadn't really been on my plate. Um, there was a specifically, there was a story called Post and Beam, which I read in the New Yorker and I can't remember which collection it ended up in, but the ending of that story, um, I, I won't quote it cause I'll butcher it, which would be terrible, but everyone should read it. And the ending of that story, you, you've been kind of long, this long in the moment story about this young newlywed couple and then suddenly at the end, it goes, you know, it was a long time ago that all this happened and talking about where they, they lived in Vancouver in the post and beam house. And then it says something like when she was 24 years old and new to bargaining. 
And that's the end of the story. And I mean, you get basically one sentence of telescoping out into the future, from which point you're looking back at the story, and then you get this line, which and, and new to bargaining. And you basically see in those three words what the entire rest of her life has been like. It was just, it's a, it's a heartbreak sentence. She does it in so few words, and she does it through this incredible chronological shift. Um, and listening to me talk about it, no one's going to understand. So just, you have to read the story. It's called Post and Beam. But, um, that I was probably, you know, in my twenties when I read that story and early twenties. And it just was, you know, better than any workshop or craft class that I could have taken in just demonstrating what could be done just with this one element of time. Um, let alone what she does with, with other elements like point of view. But, um, I'm still, I, I, I am kind of portioning out her collections, hopefully over the rest of my life. Cause I, you know, I, I don't want to read them all at once, but every time I pick one up, I'm just, I'm actually terrified. I'm terrified to read her work because it's a challenge to me to completely change my game. Um, I'm, I'm going to learn so much by reading her that it's basically going to make a lot of work for me because I'm going to have to figure out how to do these things now that I want to do. And I can only absorb so much at a time. <laughs> so I haven't, I haven't read a collection of hers in like a year now because I'm, I'm scared. Um, I, I, I need to wait until I'm ready, I think. Well, can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you feel changed a lot from the first draft or something that you really struggled with or something that you, you just really love now. Well, you know what I'll do? Since you like the Miracle Years of Little Fork, I'll read it for you. <laughs> um, all right, so this is the beginning of the Miracle Years of Little Fork. In the fourth week of drought, at the third and final performance of the roundabout traveling circus, the elephant keeled over dead. Instead of stepping on the tasseled stool, she gave a thick descending trumpet, lowered one knee, and fell sideways. The girl in the white-spangled leotard screamed and backed away. The trainer dropped his stick and dashed forward with a sound to match the elephants. The show could not continue. So tell me about writing that. It was fun to just play with kind of the the visuals of a circus, you know, for one thing, the um, the very stock standard things. I, I don't need to spell out the scene for you. It's, it's kind of interesting. You know, there's certain, we always want to orient a reader in the first paragraph. You don't want the reader wandering around wondering where they are. You want the reader to feel totally dunked into the world, right? And um, this is a sort of, you know, sometimes you have to, really show where you are. You have to describe the situation and the scene because it's not something that people know about yet. But when you're working with sort of stock footage almost, um, you know, I say circus and I say white singled leotard, elephant, traveling circus, you basically know exactly what you're looking at in the same way that, you know, if I said like public school, third grade classroom or, you know, Everyone has a picture versus the world building, for instance, that someone would have to do in a fantasy novel with a land that doesn't exist in an extreme example. So um, it was fun to just be able to quickly use those things and throw them out there, knowing that that wouldn't really be the focus. The focus is going to be on the dead elephant rather than on the background. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Rebecca Mackay author of the short story collection, Music for Wartime. Where do you write? Um, I, everywhere. I mean, it's the thing, like, I, I 
feel like I, I have to be flexible and be able to write like, you know, on the floor of the airport or wherever, because otherwise I'm never going to get any writing done. You know, I have a desk. I'm sitting at my desk right now in my office. First of all, I, I've, I've been really fortunate um, to receive time from several different artists' colonies over the past few years. Um, and, you know, getting there and, and just doing nothing but writing for two or three weeks especially when you're working on a novel and being, a, you know, having all those pieces to juggle. I do my absolute best writing there. Other than that, you know, I, I get out, I work at a coffee shop or at the library or at a wine bar if it's the right time of day. Um, I feel like it's healthy to get out of my house, fewer distractions. And I feel it's not just like, oh, I, I would do laundry if I sit home. I totally wouldn't do laundry. I never do laundry. But um, it's more, you know, I have young kids and I think getting out of my house, um, I'm able to just feel even if they're asleep, if I'm out of my house, I'm not mommy. I'm in, I'm whoever I need to be to be in this story. I can, and I can go somewhere really dark or explicit or whatever it is that needs to happen without um, that part of myself always hanging over my shoulder. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Gosh, there's, I mean, the things that aren't writing, I think are just always calling you. So it's easy to find those. Um, I do a lot of yoga. And, and I mean, that's such a standard thing, I guess, but, but, um, I'm, I'm, I have a pretty serious Ashtanga yoga practice that is like, I, I don't know if, you know, if you know what Ashtanga is, it's like, it's crazy, it's crazy people yoga. It's really intense. And I do other kinds too, but that is, I think the farthest that I can get away from my work without, you know, leaving the country or something is, is to go in there for a couple of hours and, I still end up thinking about it. You know, we're supposed to, you're supposed to lie in Shavasana at the end of yoga and like have no thoughts. And I'm lying there and totally like revising and plotting and stuff. But, but I'm not doing that until then. I'm not doing that when I have like my leg over my head because I'm thinking about my leg being over my head for that time. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Two, two things before it gets to my agent. Um, my husband is a fantastic editor. He's a high school English teacher and um, not a creative writer himself, but just has a fabulous eye. Um, and then I also have a writing group here in Chicago. Um, other really, um, you know, people, people in their, um, who are at about the same place in their writing careers, people I just really, really respect. And, um, there are seven of us and, um, they're, they're really sharp. So the, the novel I'm working on right now, they've seen most of it. My husband hasn't yet. Cause I want to save his read for the the crucial time, but, um, they'll see it. And then actually my, my mom is the most amazing proofreader. Um, she, um, she used to run an academic press and she just has a great proofreading eye. So nothing, um, nothing goes to press without my mom seeing it, which I don't think is what most writers would say. Uh, but, but my mom has to look at it first. And how have you dealt with rejection? I've never been rejected. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, it, I think this, this is going to sound fake, but it's, it's really not. I'm always a little alarmed if I sell a story before it's been rejected a few times, because every time it's rejected, it comes back to me and I magically know what was wrong with it or what I think was wrong with it. It might have been that the editor, you know, hates cats and there was a cat in it or something and I'll never know. But to me, like it comes back to me. I thought it was great. It gets rejected and it comes back to me. And I'm like, oh, my God, of course, it's the second paragraph. That's the problem. And it's so clear to me just because it was rejected. Suddenly I'm able to see it. And I'm not, I, even if I try to make that mental leap and like pretend it was rejected, I can't do it. It has to actually be rejected and come back to me. And then I can go in and fix it. 
And um, the few times stories have been accepted kind of right away, I end up not liking those stories in the long run because I feel like there's something wrong with it and I don't even know what it is and it, it hasn't been properly vetted, you know. Um, it was it was picked too green and, and it's not ready to be out there. So, um, I mean, you got to have a really thick skin. But, um, and, and of course, you know, rejection is one thing. There are other kinds of pain, like, you know, the bad review and the just, you know, the, the, um, the, the slight, you know, the, the, um, the, the professional slight and things like that, that are, I think you can still get through. They're less obviously useful. <laughs> um, but I think, I think literal rejection, the hearing no is much more pleasant than those. And, and I think really, really is often illuminating. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Um, gosh, my favorite word. Maybe it's detritus because I used that word so many times in my story. I'm going to go with detritus. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Rebecca Mackay, author of the short story collection, Music for Wartime. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like. And on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.